Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready. You're going to Vegas with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. This is Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi, the podcast. Let all the others fight and fuss. Whatever happens, we've got Las Vegas is a town that removes things when the time is over. Imposions are usually met with celebration and excitement, but there was one exception for the old-timers in Las Vegas, and that's when the sands imploded. Yeah, everybody kind of went, ugh. And that's because that place has such a great history, and David Schwartz has written a great new book. It's called At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together, and went out with a bang. And you probably know David Schwartz. He knows more about Vegas history than I think anybody does. He directs the Center for Gaming Research over at UNLV and has written some great books about gambling, and we'll tell you about those at the end of the interview. But, David, the Sands really was something special. I mean, even for hotels on the Strip that have been special, it, it was super special. You know, the Sands was, uh, like I said, in the book title, the place where the Rat Pack came together. I think the Sands, more than any other place, epitomized classic Vegas. You know, when you think of Vegas, when you think of the old days, odds are you're thinking of the Sands. Everybody's seen that great picture with Frank, Dean, and Sammy with the sign overhead. And Mm -hmm. like you say, I think that just is classic Vegas and one that people want to remember. But let's talk about its beginning. It goes back to 1952 and... uh, as was a lot of Vegas at that time, the underworld was certainly involved. Oh, for sure. And it's really interesting because it actually had this prehistory. Before it was the Sands, there was a little restaurant and nightclub there called LaRue, which was opened by Billy Wilkerson, who was some Vegas fans might recognize that name. He, of course, was the guy who came up for the original idea for the Flamingo. And through... The wisdom of having Ben Siegel as a business partner, I use the word wisdom maybe a little bit sarcastically there, <laughs> ended up out of that project. And he came, you know, and so most people know that, you know, yeah, that was it for him in Vegas. He actually came back three years later, four years later with LaRue and was trying to basically start over there. And that went really badly. Yes, and so much closed, so that he's there, right? <laughs> sort yeah, of. Yeah, <laughs> and it closed, it closed really quickly. Within about six months, it was it closed. So that dream evaporated. And then people started saying, well, what if we built something else there? A guy named Mac Kufferman from Palm Springs, originally a liquor distributor in New Jersey, got involved and had plans to build an expansion of LaRue, but ran into licensing trouble because apparently they didn't like that he was good friends with a guy named Doc Staker who was a lesser-known-today person in the mob, but at the time was pretty notorious. You know, I kind of would describe him as Meyer Lansky with a lower profile. Lansky was involved in this too, right? He was. I mean, pretty much, and it's hard to say because it's not like they had drew up articles of incorporation, but it seems like there was money from there, probably Frank Costello, 
definitely from Lansky, definitely from Staker, and they all sort of had their interests, and there was a bunch of different people in the casino, you know, looking after their interests. So definitely there's a couple different groups or families, if you want to call them that, involved in the Sands. Well, in the early 50s, of course, there were places up and down the Strip and as well as downtown. What made the Sands so different? I think the thing that made the Sands different was the entertainment and also the publicity. You know, entertainment starts with Jack and Trotter. He had been the general manager of the Copacabana in New York. Of course, Frank Costello, the mob boss, secretly owned a big share of that, so they were no strangers there. Came out to Las Vegas to be the vice president of entertainment at the Sands. Ran the Copa Room. Of course, that's no secret. That's where the name Copa came from. And was really good at making the Sands the place you wanted to be. If you were an entertainer, you wanted to perform the Sands. Even if it might not pay as much as some of the other places, the fact that you had played the Sands, the fact that you had been at the Copa with Jack and Trotter, meant you could go to your other nightclubs around the country and get more money. Basically, it would raise your profile a lot. So it was... You know, one of the things that entertainers wanted to do would be at the Sands, and that was, I think, contributed to the mystique of the hotel. And, of course, the public relations part, too, they put a lot of work into this and just selling the fact that, hey, Sands is fun, you're going to have a great time here. And it was great, really, for all Las Vegas, right? Because this, this was, became a mecca, and even if you didn't stay there, you were going to visit there, and that was kind of the Cadillac of the uh, cars that were sitting out in the lot at that time. It really was. You know, when you look at Vegas at the time, I think the Sands and the Desert Inn were the two, I guess you could call them high-end places. You know, the casinos were a lot closer to each other then in that regard. It wasn't like today where you've got Bellagio at one end and Circus Circus at the other. I think they were a lot closer, although there definitely was a hierarchy. But yeah, the Sands, if you could, you know, if you, I'll put it this way, you know, up until Caesar's Palace opened, Probably the hardest casino to get into, to get a room at on New Year's Eve, was the Sands. Really? Now, talk a little about the rooms. Were they different? Because at that time, they didn't have these big, huge towers or anything like that. They were more resorts and sort of things. Was was the Sands, along with the entertainment and the gambling, was the uh, accommodation special as well? Well, originally, they had all the low-rise rooms, one- and two-story buildings, and there was they went back pretty far. It's pretty far away from the main building with the casino in it. And they were similar to other places in some regards. I think what they did was it was a little bit more spread out and it didn't feel quite as cramped. So I think people felt that real resort atmosphere there, like it was some someplace special. So I think they did a good job of that. And the rooms themselves weren't, you know, if we go back and look at pictures of them, they don't really look exceptional by what we'd expect today, but I think it was good for those customers. You know, when you're living in New York city and staring at the inside of an office all day to come out someplace and see palm trees, that's, I think that's, that was enough back then. That was high living. Yeah. And you know, for gamblers, the Sands was probably the best place outside of Monte Carlo that you could go. I mean, that was really the Mecca for great gambling. Yeah, I mean, they they put a lot of pride into how they cater to gamblers, and this is serious gamblers. These are the people who are coming out in junkets. You know, they they would know who you were, they would treat you very well, and they would expect you to play 
a lot. So if you had the money to, to gamble and if you wanted to, you would go there. It is, it's amazing at how different Las Vegas was back then compared to now. You would never have to show your ID or even give your name. They would just know you as, you know, Mr. M or Mr. G. That's all that you will be known as on the floor. And you certainly wouldn't be signing anything. You know, because of course, this is a time when gambling was much more stigmatized and people who had positions at the New York Stock Exchange wouldn't, you know, not everybody would be as tolerant as they were in Vegas. And the people in Vegas were very discreet about that. So, yeah, they, they catered to big gamblers in a lot of ways. Well, and the whole concept of credit was much different back then than it is now, right? You could get it, yeah. but but you better pay it back. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. And it was, I mean, the, the threats and stuff would were probably, that was really the last resort. If somebody was just going to be a total knucklehead and not pay, then they would resort to that. But a lot of it was their, the gambler's sense of honor, where they wouldn't want people knowing that they welched on a bet. And they wouldn't want people thinking that they weren't good for it. And that was part of the pride that gamblers had back then because it was such a tight-knit community. And, you know, if yeah. you could say, okay, you're not going to pay us. I'm going to put word out that you don't pay your, you know, you don't pay your markers off. That would be, you know, that would be like getting cut off from communion or something for a lot of them. That was just unthinkable. Well, the 50s were an exciting time. 1960 is a big deal, though, and it all starts with Ocean Eleven. That was really, or Ocean's Eleven, that was really a big thing, right? Because that's where the Rat Pack, uh, at least the Vegas connection, kind of clicked. Yeah, I mean, that was where it really came together. Frank wanted to make a movie with his friends. Peter Lawford had bought the script, you know, had bought the concept, bought the story, and they worked on the script. I mean, even the script was pretty... They did a lot of improv in, <laughs> in that movie when they actually filmed it. But basically the idea was, hey, let's let's have fun, let's hang out, and we'll do it. So Al Freeman, who was the director of publicity, said, wait a second. While we have everybody here, let's bill them all. You know, we'll have all three of them, Frank Dean and Sammy, on the marquee. And people will come here, and they'll see some kind of combination of all three of them, and this was really, this was the first time that it had been done. Also, another interesting note I learned researching the book is that they did not like the phrase Rat Pack at all. And actually, if you look back at the newspaper stories, they never use the word, the phrase Rat Pack. They never use those words. That pops up in the 80s. Back then, they would call them the Klan. Yeah, and then Lower you can case. see the... Uh, with a C, not with a K. Right, a C, not, not a K. <laughs> right. exactly. Yeah. Well, you know, and the, the thing is... I remember getting an album, you know, obviously many years afterwards, of, of one of those things at the Sands. And you listen to it, and you can almost feel the excitement. There is an excitement there that's kind of hard to imagine for almost any other entertainment thing short of seeing Elvis or the Beatles. Yeah, it was a lot more spontaneous. And I think there's a lot more interplay, which is why people still react to it. You know, it wasn't Elvis comes, he does his thing, maybe he throws a couple scarves. But pretty much you're going to get Elvis. Right. You know, and it's a big production. Rat Pack, you know, what kind of mood is Frank in? You know, not always for the best, but, you know, what kind of mood is Frank in? What's Sammy? You know, what have the papers been saying about Sammy? That's going to have a big impact on the, on the show. And they also would incorporate the... The other thing is the guests. It's, it's about 500 people at that time in the Copa. And a lot of them were big... Hollywood people, and they're right there, right down in front, and they're going to be interacting with them, so you never know. I mean, of course, 
there's the famous time when Jack Kennedy, back in January of 1960, when he was at the Copa Room, you know, so you could pretty much have anyone there, and they would be, they would incorporate that into the act. Yeah, and I imagine it was something for the the regular visitor. Boy, you wanted to be a part of that. You just wanted to be able to tell your friends that you hung out with with Jack Kennedy and Frank and Dean were in a good mood that night or what have you. <laughs> it, it's really, it, it's kind of an incredible magic, and it kind of spilled over to the city, right? Because Vegas kind of has that reputation. You know, all this, uh, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, kind of goes back to that. I think it does, and I think it was, you know... Even when it wasn't part of the show, so another group of people who came to see the show more than once were the Apollo astronauts. And this was in the mid-60s when the Apollo astronauts were you know, the biggest national heroes we had. So imagine telling people, like, yeah, we went to the show and we were sitting right across from the Apollo crew. Like, that's kind of incredible. And I don't know that you have it so much today. You know, yes, you have celebrity sightings. But it's not quite the same thing because the venues aren't as intimate, right? And so you're not don't have that same feel. Well, and those guys like Sinatra, Martin, Davis, they would go out and play in the casino sometimes, right? So you could be out there shooting craps, yeah. and there they are. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's another there's a real funny story. This was back, I think, in 1954, might have been 55 actually, where Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis before they split up took over a blackjack table. They basically had a layover in Vegas. They weren't even performing in the Copa at that time. They layover. They pretty much take over this blackjack table. And Dean, who had been a dealer back in Steubenville, is just basically, you know, paying people when they bust, like just giving money away. And they gave away about $80,000 in a half hour or so. And it was a national story. Wow. <laughs> and they're like, yeah, you know, and they're basically like, well, we're glad they left. We're glad they had to catch a plane, but we, you know, we couldn't have paid that much for all that publicity. So it was, you know, you could see that kind of thing happen with, with today. I mean, for good and for bad, there, you do yeah. have to have better cash control these days, but it's not like you're going to see, you know, Lady Gaga is going to be dealing to you. If well, Lady no, Gaga is the performer. Yeah. And what, you know, and David, that's one of the things that's really interesting because people always remember that as the good old days when the mob ran Vegas and all the perks were there. All you had to do was gamble and all that. And, it, you know, it's come to where now there are things like uh, resort fees and you feel like you're nickel and dimed. And that's a big conversation around town. But that sort of started when the sands changed, when uh, Howard Hughes bought the sands. The whole feel of the place kind of changed, didn't it? Yeah, and that's another interesting thing about the book is that you I could kind of trace in one property these changes where originally it was very much, you know, if you knew Carl Cohen, the casino manager, or some of the other hosts, you were good. You know, and then it starts to shift with Howard Hughes. They bring in accountants. They're going over everything. You know, ironically, it was less profitable under the accountants than it had been under the guys who – Hadn't yeah. gotten accounting degrees. That's kind of funny, <laughs> but you know that's, that that could be true about a lot of things. You know, basically it continues, and they s still had good people working there. And the Sands, up until it closed, was still a place where you would end your career, not really a place where you would start it. You know, you would work up to try to get a job at the Sands. Once you got it, you wouldn't leave because it was still a good casino. But it just definitely gets a little bit less spontaneous as time goes on. 
Yeah, and it's funny because I've talked to some of the people from back the back in those days, and boy, you had to be a dealer at the Sands. You, you would love that, and you work your way up to that. You didn't just go start there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was that was true. I think for a lot of departments, where you would, if you got a job there, you know, even in the food and beverage or the hotel, you would want to stay there. And I think that's one of the reasons why you continue to be a successful casino right up till the end, just because you had good people. And I think that's why people kept coming back to you just had that attraction. Well, I think it's kind of interesting, too. It was sold to Sheldon Adelson. Of course, now that's the Venetian. But this, mm-hmm. even though it's gone, there's still a magic t- to that. I mean, the Venetian is a great, it's a great location. The convention's right there. So it still has a little, you know, and it's, there's a Sands Convention Center. There's still a little magic even to the name. Yeah, and I think no matter what, the Sands as we knew it then was going to be gone no matter what. So even if Sheldon Adelson doesn't implode it in, you know, when he did in 96, mm-hmm. you know, I don't think it would still be around the day just because Las Vegas had evolved so much and you couldn't have a 777 room property. It, wouldn't, it just wouldn't be viable with everything else today. So I think that, you know, it definitely makes sense that you would change it. You know, the, the era of the Rat Pack was gone at that point and it wasn't going to come back. And it would, you know, a lot of people say they miss those places, but if they really did, they would have spent more money at them and they wouldn't have gone out of business. Like Riviera would still be here. Yeah. A lot of those places would. Well, and then the name has a certain marquee value. I mean, you saw what the Sahara, the SLS, coming to the Sahara, the one thing I think that people really enjoyed was that name change and then a whole bunch of other things have gone on since then. And, yeah. and I think all that kind of shows that you can't go home again, right? I mean, somebody could buy a hotel, they could call it the Sands, and trying to recreate that magic is pretty, that's impossible, I guess, in these days. Yeah, I mean, well, look at the Flamingo. You know, it's a big hotel, but you couldn't argue that, yeah, this is the same place that Ben Siegel opened back in 47. I mean, it's just not, you know, it doesn't, it, technically it's the same organization, but it's not the same building, it's not the same feel, and it just had to change so much. You know, even the Tropicana, which is a little bit less extreme, it's not quite as big, but it's very different from what it was back in the 60s. So even the places that are still with us in name, they've evolved a lot. You know, I think maybe the one place that hasn't, that has done a good job of this is Circus Circus, because even though it's evolved and grown, it kind of still has that identity. Yeah. Where you get, yeah. And of course, they still have that original casino floor, the original oval part, which, you know, they never should change that because that's still the place. Even though the whole resort has changed around it, like when you go there, you're like, yep, this is the place where Jay Sarno was. This is where he liked to shoot craps. David Schwartz, what a pleasure having you on here. you got to get his books on gambling. There's some of the best, three books that are fantastic. Uh, Roll the Bones, The History of Gambling, Suburban Xanadu, The Casino Resort on the Las Vegas Strip and Beyond, and Cutting the Wire, Gaming Prohibition, and the Internet. All three fantastic. And this latest one is, is he my favorite of the bunch. It's At the Sands, the casino that shaped classic Las Vegas, brought the Rat Pack together, and went out with a bang. Hey, thanks, Dave. Appreciate it. Thanks a million. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? 
Then call. That's right. Call the low-cost airline travel hotline now for prices so low, we can't publish them anywhere. Low-cost airlines has all kinds of cheap travel deals. Fly domestically and save up to 75%. You can even fly internationally and save even more. Yes, fly anywhere in the world and save a lot of money on your plane tickets. We'll even save you money with cheap travel deals on hotels, rental cars, even complete travel packages. So don't book your tickets until you call us first for the absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. 800-296-1337. That's 800-296-1337. Hi, this is Dr. Annette of The Dr. Annette Show. We've been talking today about COVID-19 and steps you can take to possibly prevent or mitigate infection. Silver and zinc have been used for centuries as disinfectants and as antimicrobials. We're offering you this special discount to make it easier and more affordable to get these essential silver and zinc liquid mineral supplements. Visit our website at www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Once again, that's www.elementalresearchinc.com and use promo code VEGAS20 to get 20% off silver and zinc products. Professional line not included. We are all in this together and we can get through this. Learn more at ElementalResearchinc.com and use the promo code VEGAS20. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease.